Listeners, welcome to the business of wellness. I am your host, Jacqueline London. I am a registered dietitian, author, brand and product consultant, and podcast host. And I am very, very, very excited about this episode. I am so excited about this episode that I wound up recording for way too long. If you're new to this podcast, I am a registered dietitian. And I have worked across different areas of the nutrition industries. I am really excited to be able to bring you the second annual wellness trends of the year. So this is a little bit of a trend forecasting exercise for me. I used to write a lot of articles that were on this topic, this subject matter focused on, you know, projecting future trends, what, where, and when, and how the market would shift and become what we now currently understand to be wellness. I mean, I am indeed old enough to remember when wellness was preventative medicine. So here's the thing. We're going to split this up into two episodes. The first episode that you're about to hear is um, a little bit of a landscape overview. It's a look at the current state of how we talk about food and health and the relationship between food and health, the wellness industry on the whole, and where I see the greatest areas of opportunity for brands. There's going to be three specific ones that we cover here in today's episode, the, the kind of three major categories for brands brands, products, and services um, to really to, to really put a stake in the ground, to really make a difference in building businesses that help to support the overall health and well-being of everyone, of today's consumer, or if you are a B2B brand, this is also how can you, um, how can you evolve to discover and unlock the next phase of your brand's story and bring to market products, services, and experiences that really fundamentally change the current landscape and, and kind of bring us from a state of sick care to a real preventative healthcare model. Um, so that's what we're going to cover in today's episode. I hope you enjoy. Again, if you like this episode, if you like what you're listening to, please, please feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple and on Spotify. I would love to hear from you. This podcast is all organic. It's all organic growth. There is no paid media being put behind this as I record this. Hopefully, hopefully that will change. But for the moment, for the time being, I would love your support. So for today, please enjoy the top three major areas of opportunity in 2023 for any brands and businesses in the wellness space. I would love to hear what you think. You can find me on social media, all social media platforms at Jacqueline London RD and on TikTok at Jacqueline London. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please feel free to leave a comment and hit follow so that you don't miss a future episode. All right. Listeners, welcome back to the business of wellness. I have a treat for you today and it is not, it's not a guest. It is the one and only yours truly. <laughs> I really hope, I hope you think that's a treat. I don't know. I mean, mom, I feel like for you, maybe that's a treat. Although I think perhaps my mom is still looking for um, how to access her podcasts as I am sitting here with you all. Um, anyway, today is a special episode because I am very excited. I have put a lot of time and energy and thought into this presentation of sorts today, but honestly, presentation makes it sound sad and kind of dumb and like full of myself. That's not what this is. This is a little 
a little annual tradition here at the Business of Wellness podcast. And by annual, I mean the last time I did this was, I want to say, January or February of 2022. So just a few short months ago. And that is to take a look at a little bit of future trend forecasting, specifically, and of course, in food and nutrition, but in the wellness industry at large. And I'm going to get into a number of different topics today, but I will say that if you have not listened to the biggest wellness trends of 2022 episode, which again came out the end of Jan of this last year, or maybe it was the beginning of February, whatever it is, if you're watching this right now on YouTube, you should be able to find it easily on my channel. Or if you are uh, listening from a podcasting platform or app, then you can just search the business of wellness. You can just kind of go back. Um, This is the podcast that is currently the business of wellness and formerly on the side with Jackie London. So it may be under that name, but it should be easy to access. Highly recommend it. For today's episode specifically, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach, a little bit of a different approach. Last time I was speaking to both consumers and business owners. Today, I know that my focus is business owners, entrepreneurs, investors, capital allocators, anyone who is currently in the wellness space or looking to expand their product, service, business, whatever it may be. And also my audience is health health practitioners like myself. So I know that we are really looking to find the right trends to focus on and think a little bit more specifically and deeply in ways that are actually meaningful and impactful for people's overall health and well-being and and in ways that actually impact um, each other's lives. So I'm going to focus, I'm going to scale down. I'm going to do what I did with this podcast little rebrand of sorts and and scale it back a little bit and share some of my own thoughts about where I have seen um, some major, major white space, some big gaps come up in the wellness industry at large. And then I'm also going to talk about some of the five kind of big macro trend for forecast components that I, I keep seeing in different ways showing up in different places. First, I just want to define the size of the prize to get us started, all right? The wellness industry market size is around five trillion. And when I say around, it's not even the trillion that I have the hardest time with. It's the source. There's lots of different sources out there that give a number that is 4.4, 4.9, 5.6. I've seen this show up differently. I'm going to say it is about 5 trillion and it's projected to hit 7 trillion by 2025, despite the threat of the looming recession, which we all know is coming. Um, And this is also to say that it's also projected to increase by 25%, sort of unfathomable, right? Um, Wellness industry projected to hit 7 trillion by 2025, despite the threat of the looming recession. Crazy. Um, This is some data that I got from a McKinsey survey I was looking at, and then there was an updated version of this McKinsey survey. So in, in 2021, McKinsey cited something that Honestly, when I first saw this stat, it kind of depressed me. It was um, a stat that said that 70% of the wellness industry is defined as products, so things you can buy, and 30% was services. And as a service provider, (laughs) I found that a bit 
disheartening, a little depressing. But actually, I think you'll find uh, after this episode that it makes sense why and why it might have been that way in 2021. Now, the updated version of this survey, it was amended earlier this year, um, and they did a new a new survey with a new cohort. So products continue to attract, I'm reading from this right now, products continue to attract the lion's share of spend, but services and apps continue to gain ground and now represent around 30% of spend. All right, same difference. That was my editorial. Services and apps also look to look set to capture a materially higher share of future spend. Okay, a little positive note right there. Around 45% of consumers intend to spend more on services or app-based services over the next year, while around 25% intend to spend more on products. I'll take what I can get. You know what I mean? So Another interesting little nugget that came up as I was doing my research for this episode is that uh, I think we've probably covered this in many different ways and on many different episodes, but just to reinforce some of the challenges to the wellness industry at large. When we talk about wellness, no one has a definition for it. I mean, no one. Ask two people from two different walks of life, and you will often find everyone has a very different definition or way of thinking about it or way of approaching it, and therefore it can be very difficult to define on a more specific, on a more micro level, and in ways that are actually um, useful or can be easily applied. So currently, and this is kind of cross-referencing a few sources, but I just jotted these down, I'm looking at them right now, Specifically, Global Wellness Institute, as well as McKinsey, cite the following industries as being encapsulated by the global wellness global wellness industry, and that is fitness, food and nutrition, sleep, physical well-being and immunity. Like, what? Isn't that just called being, it's called like staying alive. I mean, that might as well just be called staying alive. Okay, I digress. Personal care products, so beauty. Um, mindfulness, meditation, and mental health, which by the way, those are all very different. (laughs) Those are all very different, but they happen to start with M. Um, And of course, women's health, which just feels, just right there, just feels insulting. I don't even know. Okay, great. So yeah, the tone for today, uh, where do people get information about wellness from? Now, this one really shocked me. And I don't know why, because it seems really logical, but at the same time, it, I just, it just kind of like everything that I was already seeing, thinking about, reading about, learning more about, just kind of gelled with this one statistic, which is that the top three sources, according to, um, according to, I believe it's McKinsey, but if I'm wrong, I'm going to make sure that I leave a couple of different studies and reports to check out um, in our episode notes today. So where do people get info about wellness from? 70% from a search engine. So Google. 43% from a specialized search engine. That made me feel better, honestly, because if I think about it, you know, like I use PubMed as a search engine, (laughs) as many of us in in the health professions actually do. And 27% use social media, which is kind of high, right? I mean, that's pretty high. And it means that, you know, when you think about how much information is out there and how much misinfo you see on an everyday basis, that's, it's kind of frightening to think that both 
you know, the, the existing search engines and specialized search engines may or may not be serving people in really helpful and useful ways on one hand. On the other hand, I think, you know, there's so much good stuff out there and there are so many people that I see out there doing some really important work all day, every day that on the other hand, I think, well, it, you know, it's ultimately just going to be about where you get that information from, who your sources are and how, um, how large is the scope that you are, are looking to define, right? Like what is it? What is the problem that you personally are looking to solve and where are you accessing information that helps you find the right tools and services and products and just things, just things out there, solutions out there if you're starting from zero. of this is incumbent on on those of us in this industry to really find a way to make ourselves heard but we'll get to that um, why don't we have these things more readily available right now especially when you think about the capital allocation that goes to a variety of different industries right like why don't we have things that feel like they're really in the business of prevention what is the missing piece of this puzzle and i have thought about this so much i have researched it. I have talked to so many brilliant people about it, and I have landed on something that I think a lot of you will agree with me on, or at the very least want to hear more about, which is that we're very, very distracted. Say that differently. You're distracted. I hate to say that, but let's be honest, it's kind of true. I'm pretty focused. You know, I'm a dietitian. I'm pretty focused. So to clarify this a little bit more, we're not talking about something major and we're not talking about 
weight management. We're not really talking about the role of nutrition on physical health and well-being and psychological health and well-being, and we're not including weight as a part of that conversation. And if you think that I am totally crazy and full of it and you just want to press stop or pause or delete on this podcast, then I just would love for you to hear me out with the, the kind of current picture of things, the state of things that I'm going to paint for you next. If you speak openly in any way, in the most respectful way about weight management, no matter how respectful you really are, and and if you're a practitioner who has attempted this before, you know what I'm talking about right now, you're at the risk of being ratioed online, labeled as problematic, dismissed as promoting diet culture, or triggering patterns of disordered eating. And if we think about that for a second, that's a huge deal a huge problem. Um, If social media is our primary marketing tool and it's become downright taboo for practitioners like me who are trained in both the science and the practical application of weight management to even say that we might be able to help you in a public forum, that's pretty concerning, right? And meanwhile, other areas of the internet, other corners of the internet, people are going for prolonged periods intentionally without food. Like, 16 hours a day, like a few days at a time. This is deemed biohacking, right? It's health promoting. It's consuming large quantities of animal products and and saturated fat and saying that it reversed someone's diabetes, right? I mean, if you need any proof of that, I would just direct you to my personal Instagram account, Jacqueline London RD. You can see where I'm being ratioed right now (laughs) as I record this. Um, and we're also seeing it when we see other products, services, brands replacing food with powder, Bloom's powder. Anyone? Anyone else heard of that one? What's happening with all of that distraction? The more time and energy spent on talking about or actively not talking about food, like real food, as it relates to our health, the more time and energy is spent on is spent focusing on the wrong things, focusing on unscientific things. Um, and that's all in the name of our health, right? And this degradation of trust that consumers have in brands, I think really starts in this exact place. It may be flashy. It may convert when you put paid media behind it if you're Bloom's powders or athletic greens or some shit like that. But does that actually have a real impact on your overall bottom line? Is that going to increase revenue for you year over year? I I can't I can't make any guarantees that it will, right? Particularly because the the thing that I think I have seen time and time again and also have seen to have have noticed to be true kind of across industries is that the things that are science-backed and also can be useful to people, right? They help people get the thing done that they said they were going to get done. These are ultimately the things that win long-term, the products, the services, the brands that have stood the test of time. All of those things are both evidence-based and realistic for the moment, for for the time in which we live and for the place in which the places in which we spend our time. What happens when we do this, right? When we pour money into or we pour energy into or we as consumers purchase, we pour our money, our hard-earned money into things like glucose monitors for people with normal glycemic response or handheld metabolic carts for people who may actually think that butter is a carb. I know, 
I mention Mean Girls all the time on this podcast, listeners. If you're new here, welcome. I, I just can't help it. It's a great line, and it really encapsulates my entire job. Um, and, and also the people who are, you know, wearing ankle weights, they're, yet they've never taken the stairs, like not one time in their entire lives, right? The more we pour, we pour money into these things, these solutions, the less money there is for solutions with meaningful preventative healthcare impact for the future. We're just distracted. Most brilliant scientists, the, the best behavioral change services are only as good as, first of all, number one most important thing, their ability to be heard, their ability to be known at, at scale. And second, their ability to be really genuinely applied, used in everyday life. Case in point is this, is this example I keep returning to, which is the capital allocation um, to continuous glucose monitors this year and the, the continuous tracking of metabolism. I'd love it if someone could answer this for me. How can we explain why someone would need, someone without, someone without a history of type 1 diabetes or who's not at risk for type 2 diabetes, which I accept the argument is many of us, right? Lots of people are at risk for type 2 diabetes right now. I get that. But if you're not, then why would you need a continuous glucose monitor? I mean, replacing the need for understanding weight as one metric, not the be all end all, but as one specific puzzle piece of health and saying, let's track our blood sugar, even though we have overall healthy cells, right? Like we have decided to invest and take this technologically difficult concept that's important in medicine and brand it as consumer tech and say that this is helping people, that this is solving problems. The problem, the way that I see it, is that if we don't know the difference between chicken fried steak and vegetables as they relate to our health, we have way bigger problems. There's only so much that one data set can do on its own without understanding what an overall health-promoting, nourishing, delicious pattern of eating looks like. If people like me don't make space, make a little bit more space to speak truth to bullshit like this in 2023, then we're not going to get very far, right? I, I think it's incumbent upon us to discern myth versus fact when it comes to food and health and weight. And to say out loud why and how we've come to make specific recommendations and what's behind those recommendations. So it's up to us to find a way to make these things practical and relatable to people no matter where they're coming from. And when I say us, I mean practitioners of, um, of preventative healthcare of all types, of anyone in a specific specialty or anyone who works anywhere adjacent in this industry. Things that are intangible to people and also illogical will never change behavior. As a product and a brand consultant, I also just kind of want to say here and now on this podcast, I'm also going to use this platform as a resource as much as I possibly can to whatever extent for brands, for business owners, for entrepreneurs, for investors, anyone who wants to be a part of the future of wellness by playing a role in building things that actually work and things that actually provide lasting value and are rooted in data that's both statistically significant and clinically relevant because we need those two things in order for things to actually work. I'm seeing a lot of one or the other, but hardly any of both, okay? So in other words, data that both delivers and actually helps people long-term. I know, novel. 
these two truths can coexist in a free market economy, one of which is that people want to and need to make money, obviously, and two is that people are generally good. And for the most part, there's always bad apples. There's bad apples everywhere, right? But for the most part, people want to help other people. And they're definitely not mutually exclusive concepts. So if we want to get anything done in the next year and decade and couple decades to actually prevent disease and help people live better in ways that are personally defined, well, I'm going to take a page from the kids on TikTok and say, this is my clarity era. Okay, folks, this is my clarity era. I'd encourage you to make it yours too. And I say that because if you know me, then you know that like healthy dose of skepticism everywhere all the time is like my entire, that's my entire personality. That's my whole brand. (laughs) And also, you know that as someone who's not currently professionally accountable to a larger institution, I'm actually free to call that bullshit as I see it. I mean, we can't take action without clarity and thoughtful consideration. And so I'm not saying that we have to be assholes. I'm not saying that we don't have to make compromises. I'm saying call things as they are. Food is central to health. I want to kick off this season by sharing a little bit of insider intel with you about where I see the future, where I see innovation in the wellness space from both my perspective as a clinician and and content creator, but also my experience. Three big areas where I see the white space, where there is plenty of room to run. And so if you have ideas, if you want to make an investment, if there are things that you, of course, like to collaborate with me on um, in any one of these three spaces, then I am all ears. Of course, I would encourage you to leave a rating and a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, please. Of course, five stars and maybe just like a nice emoji, uh, like a call me emoji. that exists. Uh, You can find me at Jacqueline London RD on Twitter and Instagram and at Jacqueline London on TikTok. Um, But in general, we've got to find more ways to do the following three things. The first one is to build products that help people practice intentionality versus ideology. And I say that because food is more than just the nutrients that it consumes. And it's also, interestingly, more than the growing practices that were employed to make it available for consumption, right? Brands make a lot of money by putting health claims on their products, some of which are totally legit and, or at least there is a thought process that follows, like a logical thought process. Um, But others often seem really redundant, like produce has always been gluten-free people. I talked about regenerative agriculture in the last round of wellness trends of 2022. And I think, and I'm here for it. I love the concept. I think there are ways that we can really put meaningful um, action into place in a, a number of different areas of industry. But I also think I'm tired of hearing about it. What so many of us are waking up to now and what we're we're coming to find is that we all want what's good for the planet. We all do. I, I mean, to not want what is good for the planet or to deny that there are changes to our environment is, is not, that's not rational. That's not rational. The, the question is that for brands and for consumers everywhere, how we choose to define what our priorities are may look different. And that's okay. I think we need to start coming from a place where we accept that everyone wants to do good. Everyone wants to do the right thing. Everyone, no one wants to also live in total 
at the very least, to, to live in a place where there's garbage everywhere and where we can't go to the beach because because we've just dried up all the oceans, right? No one is saying that, and certainly not me. Um, but I think we need to get extremely hyper-specific about what we mean when we speak about sustainability. And I want to use two examples. Chef Adam McKay, check him out. Check out the episode that we did um, early on in 2022. I want to say this came out around early spring 2022, and it's Chef Adam and Jeremy McKay. Those amazing, really amazing episode, really brilliant insights, and so knowledgeable about the entire food industry at large, and shared some really, really clear and actionable advice, tips about about the way that they look to moving forward with agricultural practices that have real impact. And then they share very real KPIs in the food industry to show you exactly how this would be done. Application and the example that they used was about the practice of making milk and what's done to the residual or the leftover whey, W-H-E-Y, whey, um, when during this process, during milk processing. And I think we lose sight of the fact that sustainability does not have to be a blanket term. Personally defined for your specific niche, brand, for whatever your industry is, we need to start thinking about things as showing real value that we can convert into actual numbers or into actual goals and progress that look and feel a certain way and that feel like we've done a very specific part and played a specific role. Contrast that with the giant virtue signal that is beyond me. <laughs> it's funny because I, I like I feel like I rail on these guys all the time and I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry because the 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 impact that fake meat, meat products have had on the food industry cannot be understated because it's hard to like walk it back from where we've been. Right? I think it's probably not much of a secret that these companies are struggling, but I also think that it's maybe and hopefully not much of a secret that these are products that are not more nutritious for, for human health. In fact, many of them are less nutritious, and I am staunch about that. I mean, many of them are higher in saturated fat, higher in sodium, two nutrients that are overconsumed, and have been shown to have deleterious effects on long-term risk of chronic disease. And they're and don't have any measurable performance indicators for what makes them so sustainable. What are you comparing it to? This doesn't, it's not clear. So I think we need to go back to the drawing board on this one and figure out how we want to speak about what we're specifically doing for the future, for better health, both human health right now and the health of the planet. Because the way that I hear a lot of people talking about it, it's one at the expense of the other. And that's just not going to work. The proof. Show the demonstration about how you are specifically making an impact in your industry and we're in better shape. All right. Now, on that note, now that I've gone on a real rant, <laughs> I'm also hearing about this and I saw this holding this. So listeners, if you're, if you are, um, I was just sitting next to this because I cut it out for myself because it made me so pissed, which is a crystal ball into the future of food. Of course it is. Of course it is. And, and this is the New York Times because of course. Um, and yes, I am reading the paper version of the don't just don't okay I like it <laughs> um but I've got to say that it it got me it really got me this last line fermentation continues its march to the top of lists with no ingredient ingredients like no bee honey and no cacao 
chocolate. That's called basically go fuck yourself, consumers. Excuse my language. But that's literally what that's called. Because no bee honey, how do you make that? How do you make no cacao chocolate? No, you, no one knows what that means. None, really, for now. Not forever. <laughs> We can have more discussions on this. And of course, I welcome some, I welcome people who disagree with me always on this platform, but I, I think it's sort of hard to disagree with some of these things. Am I right? I mean, comment, share, tell me what you think. All right. Let's talk about the the kind of next area of white space that I think we should all or could all stand to be a little bit more focused on. My personal food philosophy is like the Mediterranean diet applied to 2022 reality. 2023 reality. Geographical differences, cultural nuances, and individual circumstances in the mix, I am certainly not afraid to say that the single most impactful factor in wellness, no matter how we're choosing to define it today, tomorrow, yesterday, is food, right? It's universal. We all need to eat to live. And yet it's the one thing that's become so taboo to, to speak about. And as such, we we are often derailed on these on the big food industry virtue signal that was 2022. So how else can we, can we continue to make things that are truly meaningful for people? And what else does that, how else will that show up? What else will that look like? Um, I, I think that this is where the, the second big category really takes hold. And that is services that eliminate everyday barriers to behavior change. Now, I'm not talking about this on a public health scale, and that's for a reason. It's not my area of expertise. I learned plenty about it in school, but it's not where I spend my time all day, every day. So I'm going to speak about this more from the, the consumer standpoint um, and what my experience has been working one-on-one -on -one with patients or in groups or in media with real people who express questions, concerns, frustrations. It's not an exhaustive list. So let me just say that, of course, this is by no means exhaustive, but, and it's not applicable to 100% of human beings everywhere. I can't do that. I don't know that many people. Um, but just to zoom out for a second, based on what I know from both research and practice, and as a very general, very high level statement, most of us could stand to do all of the following things in our everyday lives. And they're very small things, but they have a huge impact on human health. The first one would be to choose more real whole foods, okay? So when I say that, I mean things that are nutrient-dense, but not necessarily energy-dense. So vegetables versus veggie powders. You guys know already. <laughs> if you've been listening, if you've made it this far, you know how I feel about those. Um, that Another great example of that, uh, oranges versus orange juice. Another one that if you know me well, you're probably laughing out loud to yourself right now. Um, but the more real wholesome foods we can consume and the more solutions and technologies and services and, and innovation that we can create to make more real whole foods more delicious and more accessible to people automatically the better off we are. Now, this is not to say that my stance has changed in some way on my thoughts on what it means to eat processed foods or foods that undergo processing. Yes, everything undergoes processing. That's very true to some extent in some capacity, right? But it is to think about how many people struggle with getting more nutritious meals on the table for their families and to think about a variety of different solutions, whether it's the packaging or the scenario or the setting or the ease of use of a product that helps people do this more often without compromising taste, time, or cost. 
kind of seems like the most epic challenge ever, but I'm up for it if you are. Um, the third would be to think about including um, a greater variety, adding more produce to more meals and snacks throughout the day. I say this on repeat all the time, so I hesitate to even repeat it now, but I think we can't ever really lose sight of that one. The more produce you're able to incorporate into your everyday meals and snacks, the more nutritious and more satisfying your meals ultimately can become. Um, it also displaces the calories that we consume from less nutritious food sources that are nutrient poor, but often are nutrient poor, with more nutrient rich options. Um, so I think that's really something to consider. Our health, our overall dietary pattern or pattern of eating is not determined by nutrients alone or, of course, agricultural practices that were used to make the foods that we consume on an everyday basis. But anytime we take things away from our everyday meals and snacks, which is so often how so many consumer products are marketed these days, right? Like free from, we always have to think about at what cost, right? What is the cost of taking something away? Because to retain flavor, something else has to be added in there. So the more we can consider what we can add, which is veggies and fruit, to our every, everyday meals and snacks, the more nutritious our overall eating pattern will ultimately become. So how do we make this easier for people to actually do? We need to find more ways to drink unsweetened beverages. That's a biggie, guys, because you know how I feel about this one. I mean, honestly, I, I just... <laughs> I want to be clear that when I say unsweetened beverages, I'm not talking about the replacement of sugar or lollipop. These are gut health supporting, like they're marketing their gut health benefits. Oh no, no. the gut health marketing is, it's, uh, is a problem in and of itself. So let's get ahead on that and say we're not going to put ingredients into beverages where they don't belong. It's just simple. Let's just leave it there. More movement, more often, can't say that enough, products that target improvement of sleep of quality of sleep or of the ability to actually get sleep at night, I think that's going to be huge both in 2023 and, and for the future because we all know that we're not sleeping enough, myself enthusiastically or exhaustedly included in that statement. Anywhere that we can find solutions that help make that a little bit easier, the better off that we'll all be. All right, so the last one that we're going to talk about for today before we wrap up and continue this conversation next week is to to anyone out there who is a business owner or who is looking to create new products, new platforms, services, experiences that build meaningful connection, this one is for you. So nourishment, better health, better well-being, optimization of well-being, it's all about connection, honestly. I mean, I say this all the time, but I can't, I really just can't say it enough. And I can't reiterate, you know, this point more than, than saying this here and now, which is that connecting to and where our food actually comes from, connect, connecting to food because of the care and effort that went into preparing a meal or connecting to one another around a table of friends, a family of loved ones, the family meal, right? Connecting to ourselves by feeding ourselves what we truly need in a given moment it's invaluable. And I know that if you're anything like me, you've experienced some feelings of disconnection over the past few years. And, and if not, you know, I also know that so many of us feel like just simply making more nutritious choices for yourself, for your family, it can often be a real time, energy, and financial suck that ultimately leaves you feeling like you just ate air 
right? I mean, I mean, not to mention you're still feeling hungry. Uh, there, there's just so many iterations of this. There's so many variations of this feeling of dissatisfaction and disconnection. So if you are working on something, if you are working on something going into 2023, if you are hoping to optimize your brand or or launch a new product and you think it's really got staying power, then you have to factor in connection. Whether we are grabbing takeout, making meals at home, considering how any given food choice or meal can help us, can help one another feel more connected to to a cooking experience or to a dining experience or to just a meal that you had while you were working on something else that you feel connected to, right? These are all important ways that food is both the the food becomes the glue of our connected experiences, but it also becomes the thing that the the vehicle by which we can all feel a little bit more like ourselves and feel a little bit more grounded and a part of something bigger than us. Um, I I think that's probably the best place for us to leave it today. But I do think it's important to to share again that any type of experiential, immersive, or connected experience about and around and discussing and consuming delicious food, delicious meals that we all love and that that help us learn about something else, about something beyond our scope. That's really that's really where it's at for me in 2023. I think we need more connection, we need more experiences, and we need more ways to explore and discover the things that we ultimately will become a part of and that will become a part of us that will make us feel more connected. All right. So now I'm hoping that you're on board. I know that this episode is a little all over this, all over the place. I am finishing this recording at an ungodly hour, which means I need to go and take my own advice and go to sleep. (laughs) So please join me next week. I'm going to go through the top five biggest, the, the biggest kind of bucket trends that I am seeing out there right now that are in development as I speak these words. We're going to cover all of those five big ones, and I will share very specific examples of products, brands, and services that are currently implementing these or those on the right track. So stick with me. I am so glad that you joined me today. And if if we don't, since we won't have the chance to actually connect again, I just want to say thanks for being with me this year. Thanks for for staying with this podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please go ahead and share it with someone that you think will get something out of it, someone that will appreciate it. And you can always leave me a rating or a review. Find me online at Jacqueline London RD. And happy, healthy, and wonderful new year to all of you. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening to The Business of Wellness. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Remember that advice provided on this podcast is based on my application of research and practice as a registered dietitian and should not replace medical advice provided by your physician. If you like what you're listening to, please follow the show, leave a five-star rating, and share something you love from today's episode by leaving a review. This podcast only grows with your support. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it far and wide. It may be the one thing someone needs to hear to start building that roadmap today to secure a healthier, happier future. That's it for now. So until next time, cheers.